I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. In this episode, please be advised that there are frank discussions about suicide. And if you're affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. Welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. We're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity in their early years to achieve great success. Our guest today is a world champion ballroom dancer and is head judge on Strictly Come Dancing. Shirley Ballas started dancing when she was seven and both her husbands were dancers. But behind the sequence, her father left when she was two, her mother worked in a chocolate factory and her brother helped bring her up. She's always struggled with insecurities. My whole life, she says, I've never felt as a female I was up to scratch. Shirley Ballas, thank you very much for joining us. Why do you think Strictly is such a phenomenal success? Because in some ways it's very old-fashioned, isn't it? It's, it's quite nostalgic. Do you think that dance is one of the best ways of cheering us all up after COVID? Well, dancing is... De- if we go through the years and years and years of Strictly, which I believe has been on for many now, I think it offers to the whole family something, from the youngest of children to the oldest of grandpas. I think there's glitz, there's glamour, there's sensual appeal, there is baubles, bangles and beads, there is storylines, there are so many things that people can enjoy. And I think when they switch it on, it's a little bit like a Las Vegas or a Disneyland, you know, it's full of life and full of costumes. And I think it's just, it caters to so many people and so many men. I've started doing my own little surveys now to ask how many men are bold enough to tell me that they actually watch the show? And trust me, it's many. Ah, it's fascinating. <laughs> we want to take you back to your own family and your own childhood. And you were born in Merseyside and your father left when you were two. Do you remember anything about him? And did you ever see him when you were growing up? I don't remember anything about him from a very, very young age. He left when I was two. I don't remember anything before that. And, you know, throughout the years, he was always attempting to come and see us but for one reason or another he couldn't um I would say that we got to know each other a little bit um probably during my second marriage better a little bit and uh, you know he would pop around sometimes if my mum had my son and he would see my son I actually just found some photographs of that but as as far as a fatherly duty of taking me or paying for anything I I and loving me and being a daddy's girl, for sure, that was not not the case in my situation. And I'm sure he had his good reasons. And, you know, maybe he was young when he got us married. I, I don't know. It must but, have been uh, an incredible struggle for your mother to make ends meet on her own. Uh, you say once that she um, applied to be a forklift truck driver. 
I mean, she must have been absolutely minuscule if she's anything like you. How did she cope? Well, she's five feet tall and she doesn't weigh more than about 110 pounds. So, you know, under eight, <sighs> she was tiny, my mum, she's tiny. But I remember her saying she got a couple of pounds more if she could qualify to be a forklift truck driver. And I actually have that photograph of her sitting in that forklift truck. Uh, she was just always a go-getter. My mother has never been a woman of complaint. I can put my hand on my heart and say my mother has never slagged my dad off or never ever gotten into a position where it was poor me. Even through the pandemic, it is what it is. Keep moving along the bus, Shirley. You know, even if I feel low, she's there to chat, to talk. She's just a very, very positive person and she takes it as she does. And she always says to me, when you get to my age, you'll look back and you'll wonder, why was I worrying about this? And I think she wouldn't change her life for one single thing. You know, she worked in Finnegan's and in different bars and pubs, and she had the time of her life. She wouldn't change a thing. She loved it. <laughs> and how did you discover dance? I think, you, did you go to the Girl Guides and you saw some people dancing? I wondered what you loved about it, whether it was somehow a form of escaping from what was quite a difficult life. Well, I, I was in brownies or guides in the church hall. There was two rooms and we were doing like practicing the CPR thing on this dummy, all of us. And I could, hear, <laughs> I could hear this music from somewhere and it was like it all was trans-like. And I, and I left the room and I can still see myself going there now. And there was a door with a little round a window in and I pull myself up to look and I could see all these adults they were all adults moving and I opened the door boldly and I asked the man will, will you have classes for children to do this and he says well actually we're starting on Saturday and that's where it all started I didn't look for dancing dancing found me and how did dancing make you feel when you started doing it because you got the whole of the playground didn't you to start dancing with you I feel that First of all, in the early years, it was a little bit of an escapism, you know, away from anything that was going on in the housing estate. It was something that I felt I really enjoyed to the music. And definitely in later years, when I was going through miserable marriages and one thing and another and different problems, I could escape to the studio to do my teaching. I was in a surrounding I was familiar with and I was in control of it. So it was something that I felt the more I studied and the better my work ethic, the better I would become at the art of Latin and ballroom dancing. So that's what I did. And why was it ballroom rather than ballet that you fell in love with? Um, I don't know. I think it was that. I remember hearing the music wheels. It was a cha-cha-cha. And <laughs> just different musical tunes and Moon River. And I just love music. And although I have a great um, respect for the ballet I don't ever think it was quite my thing you know I was in ballet from two till about I ran it parallel with Borum and Latin I think that's why I, I, I was so um, strict on myself because I had those from the ballet those you know they were the masters were quite strict in the ballet and I did love it I did love it but it comes to a point where you have to make a choice because you know when you're from a single family you can't afford to do everything and I made the choice to do Borum and Latin and did it have anything to do with the costumes? Because they are absolutely amazing. And it must have been quite difficult for your mother because they must have been unbelievably expensive. Well, as a little girl, we didn't. They, we had a neighbour called Mrs. Dewey. She lived next door and she had a sewing machine. And she made my little dresses for medal presentations. My first ever Latin dress properly came when I was probably mm, 11 years old. Um, I can still remember the little outfit. It was orange <laughs> with green trim. 
But yes, they were expensive. But as a juvenile under 12, there are no rhinestones, glitter, baubles, bangles and beads. Everybody wears like a uniform. You can have it in different colours, but we have a stringent, strict dress code rule for any children under 12. So we're all the same. You can't have one parent with a lot of money and another parent who doesn't. They make the dresses all plain. Only when you go to B12 and above can you start to have a little bit more fancy. Did your father ever help out or come and watch you dance? He never financially helped out in any way whatsoever. But I do remember um, when I was with Sammy Stockford, more when I was with Sammy, him coming along to a closed British Championships to see me dance. I think I was already winning at that point as a professional. But as a little girl, no, he didn't. And did your brother dance too? Or did he come and watch you dance? What, What was his view of having a sister who was always on the stage? My because we were on a quite a tough housing estate. My brother, I was a little bit fearful of my brother. He he was more like if my mum had to go to work, he was my friend. He was my brother. He was like my daddy. Took the dad role. And if I was out and about on that housing estate, and I'd see him from across that field, he'd chase me all the way home, and he'd say to me, "You are going to be a ballroom dancer." That's what he chased <laughs> me from age eight, nine, ten, because he was obviously my babysitter. And he kept me off the housing estate for that. I'm truly grateful. And and and, and I know that, you know, even up to when he died, he used to say to people, that's my sister. I'm so proud of her, the journey, you know, and, and encouraged by him because I believe everything is a team effort. My mother went out and earned the money. My brother took care of me at home and encouraged me and wouldn't let me hang out with the other kids. He said, no, nope, you're going to be a dancer. <laughs> that's exactly what, what I became. And in some ways, it seems almost like an arranged marriage, the way that you're put together with partners from a very young age. Did it feel like that? Because even when you were 14, you were sent away to Yorkshire, weren't you, to dance with Nigel Tiffany? That's very young age. It's almost like Jane Austen. I'll, I'll, I'll redo that wording. So not sent away because my mother fought me all the way. It was my choice. So I wanted to go to Yorkshire. I wanted to get off the housing estate. And Nigel Tiffany was uh, much higher ranked than me in ballroom. So they're like stepping stones. So, but the thing is when I went to live with his parents and him, I fell in love with him. You know, we moved to London (laughs) together. We got engaged at 16. And then of course at 17, I had that crossroads where I'd been given an opportunity to do Latin instead of ballroom. Now I loved ballroom dancing, waltz, foxtrot, tango, quickstep, beanies, waltz. I loved all that. But my heart lay in the bongos. I loved the rhythms of the Latin American. And, and I got this opportunity and my teacher said, do not tell Nigel, go for the tryout first. And I, and I did. I told Nigel, I said, I've got this opportunity. And that's when he said, well, you make a choice. You either stay with me or you're out. And he made me get out before I had the tryout. So that was difficult times. I, I have learned an immense amount. You know, I wanted to be honest with him and thought perhaps he, we could still be together and I could, you know, dance with Sammy, but that was not to be. And it was like an arranged marriage when I got with Nigel because our teacher, Nina, we never had that romance where we dated or we went on holidays or there was all that lovey, cooey coo stuff. There was never any of that. It was straight into the dancing. You know, you you became a couple. And then my teacher said to me, it, it sounds better, Sammy and Shirley Stockford, the non-stop Stockfords, that's what she used to call us. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Did it always feel as if you weren't almost weren't in control of your life? It's as if you're being shunted around the country from pillar to post. Or did you feel like you were choosing these things? I felt I was not in control of a lot of it. I felt I chose to leave Nigel. I took responsibility for, 
you know, hurting him, although he is my best friend and my financial advisor. So all these years later, him, he and I are very, very close. Um, but yes, I, I did feel a bit out of my depth, really, that it was swimming up ocean and, and, and I, could, I couldn't seem to stop the tide. It, it just seemed to like sail, sail me away. That's how it felt. And it's an incredibly sort of almost incestuous, but very claustrophobic world, but also magical world. But it's very other. It's very different from any other worlds. By the time you were 25, you'd been engaged to three of your dance partners and married to. Did you feel you were very much in this bubble and that nothing else mattered? I think I was searching. And I think when I was with, I mean, a young girl from a housing estate, get an opportunity to dance with Sammy Stockford. You become the British Open to the World Champions. You've got it all at your feet. You've got money. You've got a home. You've got a car. All the things that you didn't have. But I was empty. And I didn't, now when I look back, I didn't feel loved enough. And I'm not, because I know that my first husband loved me. It's just, I didn't feel it. It wasn't, a, I, I I like displays of affection. I like to really be told that I'm loved. You know, I'm, I, I like affirmation that way. And it just, I just didn't get it. And so I started to search. And then I fell, of course, in love with Corky. And that was a huge drama. If you've read my book, Behind the Sequence, I left in this just whale of a country then that didn't want to support me because I had left. And then I wanted mm. to come back with a beginner, you know, and I, I, I mm. came back with this man and I thought I was in love. And after three months, I realized I wasn't in love. I wanted to go back to Sammy. He wouldn't have me back. My mom said, you made your bed. You make the decisions. You better lie in it. And then, you know, I did. I stayed and I thought, OK, I'll teach this guy from a beginner to to be as the best I could do. I never in my wildest dreams thought he would become the British Open to the World Latin American champion from where he started. So, you know, I won in 83 and then again in 1985. I won with Sammy in 83 and Corky within 85. Was it very different winning with different partners? Well, it was. It was a different journey. You know, with Sammy, it was mm. meteoric rise. And with Corky, it was on the back of a turtle. So it felt like <laughs> slow and um, I had to learn every crook and cranny and really delve into the industry and understand about human ego and, you know, not just about dancing, but how the industry truly worked. And um, and then, you know, when you come back in 1995 and you beat your first husband because he was second and we were first, who had remained in second or first place all those years, by the way. You know, it's it, it, I do sometimes, and particularly with the help of, you know, some good people around me like Laurie, you just have to sit down sometimes and think, you, you did all right, you did all right, you know. And also your son Mark was born when you were 25, halfway through that time, wasn't it? Because that must have had a huge impact on your career. Oh my gosh, a huge impact. I can't tell you because we were just starting to move our results in the United States. And we were just starting to make the final there. We were in like the 96 in Great Britain, but in America, we were starting to make the final. And then, uh, you know, I got pregnant and of course I wanted to have him. And, I, you know, everybody said that you can never have it with a baby. It will not happen. But I took that kid's been all over the world with me. He, you know, he never had a babysitter from 18 months old until he was 21, except my mother. So, you know, without her again, again, without my mother, who he's extremely close to, I could not have had that second grow around the merry-go-round for sure. It was very difficult. I am in a very difficult industry. If you're a strong mm. woman in a male-dominated arena, it's difficult. You know, I still to this day, you know, I had a conversation with a colleague yesterday, I won't mention the name. I still find men don't listen to women. 
I think that's my problem today. That's why I'm having an off day, I think. They just don't listen. They don't want to hear what you've got to say. It's frustrating. Anyway, that's my rant. <laughs> and what was your relationship with Corky Ballas like? Was, in a way, you were the sort of leading partner professionally, but in your personal life, was he the more dominant character? Was he quite controlling? Was he quite masculine in that way you say of not listening he was um we had a volatile relationship for sure we had some fun times we had some ups and downs and of course we share that incredibly fantastic child that we have reared together it was difficult you know when you're a leading lady and you have to take a man from scratch that is really masculine Corky was a masculine man it was difficult for him to take criticism and then the industry criticized him and the industry you know put so many burdens on him and made him feel bad, but he was bulletproof. The thing I can say about Corky was bulletproof. He used to put a suit of armor on and he believed he was the best. And he used to stay, even when he couldn't really dance at all, you stick with me, Shirley, I'll take you places. He said it as a joke, but you know what? We went places because of this strong attitude that he had. I learned a lot from Corky. Like I said, it was a volatile relationship. That's as far as I'll go on that. But I did learn a lot about, you know, perseverance and self-belief. And if you really try again, you can you can achieve. If you dream and you believe, you can achieve. And that's what I learned from Corky. Your brother was always the linchpin of the family, um, but then he tragically died at the age of 44. What happened to him? Because he's the one you always say was the nice guy, the kind, sensitive man, the, the, the one that you were always really looking for. That, that, that's the, the man he was with me on the housing estate. He was as tough as a hobnail boot. <laughs> so he was a strong character that protected the weak and was there for people that didn't have a voice. So those things I remember growing up with, with David. Um, he, you know, it was, it was difficult times. I didn't know a lot about men's mental health. I didn't know anything, actually. I'm lying. I didn't know anything about men's mental health. I was so wrapped up in my own life at this point, I had already moved back to England. I had was taking care of my son and my husband. We were trying to make it that second time around. We had two of the children that we were raising at the time and David fell ill. And my mother who lived with me, she went up north to take care of him. And I don't think I, my mother's a very private person. We're opposite. I'm happy to share. She's happy to keep things in house. I don't think I ever really knew to what great degree he was ill. And um, and I didn't spend the time to find out. And that's my biggest regret, um, for sure. Yeah, I'm getting the emotional. Mm, sorry, I need to take a breath. Let me take a breath. Let me... how, how did you find out that he died? Because my mother was up there. My son got to perform in St. Um, one of the churches in, in central London with the Italia Conti School of Dramatic Arts. He had a lead role. And I said to both of them, why don't you come down for the day, Dave? It'll be good for you. Mom, you need a little bit of a break. She did not want to come, my mother. But in the end, I'm such a pushy person. In the end, she agreed. And David said, no, I'll be fine. I'll be fine for one day. And of course he wasn't. And she came and we were um, we were all asleep. It was in the morning. And I had let Mark stay out for the first time in his life. I let him stay out and stay with friends. And it was six o'clock the next morning. Derek opened the front door 
the police walked in. I came down the stairs first and my mother was behind me. And of course, that as any mother would when their son is not at home, I thought something had gone terribly wrong. And they said, Mrs. Rich, I stepped aside and she moved forward. And, and it was her son that, that she'd lost, you know, not mine. And, and he committed suicide. He did. He certainly did. And, you know, I've over 17 years, I have, even though it was really, really sad state of affairs, he must have been very brave to do that. I don't think it is an easy thing to do that, to take your own life. Mm. I think it takes, um, you have to really be in a very, very dark hole and and a bad place, but it's, uh, I, I don't really know what he was thinking. He'd fill the fridge up with milk in the morning and he'd, you know, and then and, and he moved his car that evening out of the driveway onto the road, obviously knowing that when he died, the ambulance would have to get in. So, yeah, it was difficult. And how did your mother react to it all? With self-blame, we both had to have counselling. You know, obviously I had, was the one that had told her to come to London. And I remember it was a Friday and we had to get back to, you know, obviously, and you know, we were going into a weekend it was actually my first husband who drove us back, Sammy, because we lived close. He drove us home. And I think she was just in shock. Mm. It took a long time, I think. Um, she's still teary if we have a drink or if we go out or we start talking about it. We keep his memory alive. We have pictures of him all over the house and we talk about him. Of course, he's still got a beautiful daughter, Mary, which which we take care of because she lost her mother to alcoholism not long after. Mm. So, you know, my mother is always always between us have taken care of of mary uh yeah my still to this day she suffers she struggles you know she was she will mm-hmm. die struggling for sure and what about you did you feel you must have felt also a huge sense of regret but also in a way you'd lost the other man in your family so your father had gone when you were very young and then you lost your brother too was that absolutely heartbreaking it was because every day at four o'clock or when the children finished school we would get on the phone and what are you doing and what did Mary do and what did Mark do? And we had this ongoing thing, you know, if anything happens to me, Dave, you make sure our Mark is okay. And well, if anything happens to me, Shirley, you take care of Mary for me. And, you know, I did a lot for him and he also did a lot in support, not in financial for me, he, but he did a lot in support. He supported my dancing career. He supported my life. He supported when my mother came to America to help take care of Mark. You know, he was a supportive person. Family to him was everything, mm. you know, and, and his daughter lived with him for the first 10 years of her life until he died. And that's what I can't understand because they were so close. They were so close and not even she could, you know, help the situation, you know, by we would say, you know, you've still got to take Mary to school and you've got to do this and you've got to do that and nothing. He was in such a dire place for reasons out of our control that we we will never understand to this day. He also must have known that you would look after Mary. That that that's the consoling things that you've been such an extraordinary sort of surrogate parent to her. Um but what must be so frustrating is seeing how little understanding there still is of mental illness for men in particular, that, and particularly those very strong men, and particularly men who've been on housing estates who know how to look after themselves. You've, you don't understand how difficult it must be for them. Well, I think mental health has no age and it has uh, no gender and it has no, it doesn't matter how rich or poor you are, mental health whether you're on a housing estate or whether you live in the most beautiful home in Beverly Hills. I think it just, 
it is what it is and it can affect so many people at certain times in their life. I know certain times in my own life, I've struggled with my own mental health. Um, and I think that David always knew that I would take care of Mary and maybe that was a saving grace for him. He knew that while ever I'm alive, I will take care of her. But, you know, now I've just fortunately been up to Alder Hay Hospital where we're building a complete unit for children from ages three on up to 13 with mental health issues. We have an outpatient, we have an inpatient where they can stay. And, you know, our whole thing is to give people tools that they can start to learn to deal with the issues before they get too far out of hand. It's all about communication. Mm. I did not have those skills. I did. We didn't have computers. I, d- I wasn't familiar with, you could Google or anything like that and get information. So you relied on the doctors. You know, the doctors just gave him these pills. I don't know. I'm not blaming anybody but myself, but you know, that there are things and there are questions to be asked when somebody has a, a mental health condition. You're listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, the Strictly Come Dancing judge, Shirley Ballas. We'll be back after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, Strictly Come Dancing's Shirley Ballas. When did you first realise you were seriously good? I don't think I ever really realised I was seriously good until I was with Nigel Tiffany. We were engaged to be married and we were in the ballroom field and ranked about in the semi-final of a closed British event that's closed to the United Kingdom. And then I got the call from my teacher, would I like to turn professional and do Latin with this man called Sammy Stopford? And he was at the top of his industry. And I was at the lowest level of my my division, you know. And I think I must be pretty good if she's asking me to try out with this dude. Because I'm a very self-critical person in every shape and form. You know, I, I, I'm very critical of myself. I, I struggle to watch myself if I'm on a show on TV, cooking with the stars or, you know, anything to do with Kilimanjaro, anything. I just, um, I'm always striving to be better, always. You've talked a lot about your own insecurities as a woman too. What do you think lies behind those? Well, I think I've always had weight issues from a very, very young age. You know, I, I think as a dancer, people make comments. I've had family people that have made comments and you know even recently I did my one woman show and somebody said to me when I came off you know you better watch that weight 
You know, now I was a little bit overweight. We were coming out of lockdown. I did know I was a little on the heavy side. But the thing was that I was given a life story for two hours. I, I got up, I made the effort to put the Latin dress on, I put the Pasadoble dress on. I rehearsed. Jason Gilkinson from Strictly choreographed it all. I had a beautiful partner to dance with. And it was more about going through the ages from Brazil to Cuba to Paris, where the Pasadoble came from, and then talking about my book through dance. But that wasn't what I got when I came off the stage. And, and I think that that verified for me the reasons why I've been insecure about the way I look, about my weight, about my overbearing voice. You know, often somebody would say to me, and I won't mention who it was, but close, what's with that face? What's with that face? You know, and maybe I have like a certain look that I have on expressions, but it made me start to be more expressionless. And I just think it's been one thing after another over years, but actually I am working on it. And, uh, you know, I have a nice boyfriend who loves every little bit about me. So, you know, <laughs> that's a step in the right direction, but it's been long overdue and I'm in my six or 61 day before yesterday. And um, yeah, it's difficult. It's, it's ongoing. It's been, it's been lifelong. It's not something that took five minutes to get to a place where you don't like how you look or you won't look at yourself in a mirror or take your clothes off in front of a mirror or you don't want anyone to see you. That's been lifelong for sure. It must create an incredibly complicated relationship with food. And that's the problem, isn't it, with dance, that it looks so effortless and flawless and fabulous, really. But at the same time, you realise increasingly now what girls and boys at a very young age have to go through to get to that stage. And in ballet or in ballroom or with you, with the cha-cha-cha, you think you know, it just looks so fantastic. You just can't understand quite how much you probably had to sacrifice. Well, you know, right now we're clearing my mum's house because she's going to move in with me and we're going through all sorts of photographs and things. And I definitely would one minute be maybe even a stone and a half heavier and then I'd have to lose it for the competition. And so binge eating was a little bit what I did and not perhaps always the most. I didn't understand healthy regimes of food, um, but criticized constantly if you don't look right in the industry. It's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. But now, you know, it, I take it upon myself a little bit more to guide younger people and to guide women. It's just to each his own. But for me, it's a healthy way of eating. It's it's not just all that sugar and just stuffing what you can in your face. It's about monitoring what I eat. It's about monitoring a little bit more healthy food. Starving is not going to do it because then you just will binge eat. It's not dieting. It's a way of life. It's mm. a way of life. And I think I'm I'm finally starting to understand that. So, But you also had breast implants, didn't you? And did you feel that you were pressurized to look in a certain way and that women come, particularly on television, come under huge pressure to have facelifts or Botox? And it's it's almost creating an artificial perfection in women. Well, I'll keep it separate from the television for a moment. And I, the breast implants I did because I wanted to have bigger boobs. And I thought that perhaps my second husband would find me more desirable if I looked better, if I lost weight, blah, 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 blah. And what I realized is if somebody doesn't love you, they don't love you. You know, when you did the article, I loved dancing with her, but I hated her as a person. Well, who would have known? You know, I was the mother of his son. I'd taken from zero to hero. But hey, ho, that's a different story. But I got those. And then, of course, three of my mother's sisters have died of cancer. My mother's had cancer. And when I went for a mammogram one day, the young lady, techni technical lady there who was looking, she says, you know, we can't really see behind in the, the back of the breast implants. And that's what sparked the whole thing off, that one sentence. And I thought, I've got to get rid of these, but not just the implants. 
I took the route where I wanted to get rid of all, because I don't know if you've seen the implants when they come out. It's like, I can best explain it mm-hmm. like a piece of steak with 10 holes that come off it and wrap around other pieces of organ. So it could be, you know, around your ribs or this and that. And I wanted it all out. So that's why the, ex- the operation was extra long. But I have to say my mm-hmm. surgeon did an absolute immaculate job. Did you just have an incredible sense of relief afterwards that you'd done? I did. I did. And they're more comfortable and they're small boobies, but they're my boobies. And mm. um, yeah. And and they've got two little smiley faces, as Danny says, right underneath them. Don't look at them as scars. They're two little smiley faces. That <laughs> is it, is it, what, what about the television angle? Do you think there is too much ageism, ageism still in television? And have you felt pressure to try and look a different way? Well, first of all, I can only give you my experience on the television. I came in at 57 years of age where I have not... Um, had any ageism put towards me or in my direction. I'm very, very late to television. I have experienced no pressure. Any pressure that I I have is from myself to look good or have a little bit, you know, mm. the laser lifting or a little Botox or something because I like it on me. So I don't I don't do it because I think, oh, I'll get another job if I do this or they didn't hire me because of that. I pinch myself every morning I wake up to think that a 57 year old woman with zero TV experience got the biggest job on television, judging strictly. Now, that's got Mm. hope to everybody who's out there. I was given an opportunity by Louise Rainbow. She saw something in me. She didn't take into consideration. I was 57. Um, She just saw somebody that was good enough for the job. And and that's how it's always been. We've gone from Louise to Sarah James. And, you know, they're always saying, make sure you're healthy eating and doing the right thing. Nobody has ever put me under pressure whatsoever. They love you in that family, whether whatever you are or, you know, whatever you do, they love you. You're part of a big family. And you've been a fantastic role model for all women, really. But the bullying on social media that some women in the public eye have had, do you get that too? Or do you find that actually you're just, you know, that there's just an outpouring of love? No. I've had bullying from a very young age, from school to going into the dance industry when I was first starting out to all through my life and to the even when I retired from men at the top. I have been bullied in this industry beyond what anybody could imagine. So bullying on social media for me once my mum put it in perspective for me and take it with a pinch of salt, or if you choose to read it, as there was people telling me not to read it. When people tell you not to read it, you're going to read it. So my mother says, you either read it and take it with a sense of humor, or you're really going to have, you will struggle. And that's what I chose to do in the end. I, I took it with a sense of humor. I reply to the people like when one put me in a grave and put a face in the grave and says, die, you be you know not nice words and play them on your radio show but um you know I've had some awful things you know you've got a chest like a Seville orange that looks like it's been eaten by a thousand slugs die and then a terrible name after it so yes I have had some but on some of them I respond and say well I'm very sorry that you feel that way about about it about me and then I often get you know what I'm really sorry that was out of order and then I don't have any problem with them again and if after three strikes they're still the same I block them and so when you talk about bullying in the industry what how does that manifest itself what's happened to you is it worse than that kind of social media harassment I would say so. I think when you're a successful female and you have an opinion 
and people see you perhaps that you could be a threat or you've got more work than this one or you're more popular or you're whatever. I feel like they they came out in force after me. You know, I mean, I, I, I can't mention names, but, um, you know, at one point in my career, this is why I went for the job on Strictly, because men at the top were telling couples, if you train with her, we'll make sure you never make it. And remember, there are nine of us and one of her. Right. Gosh. And I was losing couples. I was losing couples. I used to teach everybody in the top six of the professional, the top six of the amateur. And I lost those couples because they were scared, not because they wanted to go, because they were scared if they didn't, that they would lose their place. And, And that was the type of thing that was said to them. And then I had a job in Bulgaria that was to judge. I think it was about 150 pounds fee or something. But I wanted to go because a couple of mine, Wrangle and Veronica, were going to do a huge display there. And they trained with me a long time. And I said, okay, I'll go. It was all accepted. It was all agreed. And then somebody called them and told them, if you hire her, she's unfit material to judge. And if you hire her, we'll take your license off you. And I, and I, And they had to cancel my job. And then I told my son, I said, I'm really feel like my ship is sinking here. And he said, why don't you go for Len's job on Strictly? Try, mum. Try another avenue. You're not too old. I believe in you. And then he sat with me and we talked for hours and hours and hours and hours. And then that's when I went for the job on Strictly. So Strictly's changed my life now. I'm still in my industry to a very high degree. um, And I will never leave it till I pop my clogs for sure. (laughs) But the thing is now that those people actually did me a favor because they pushed me in a direction I otherwise would not have gone in at all. It would never have crossed my mind. But, you know, my work, I was losing my work and people were too scared about these people. And and that's what happened. That's the true story of what happened. And on Strictly now, there seems to be a really sort of um, very female supportive um, atmosphere really with sort of Claudia Winkleman and Tess Daly and you and and you know you get a sense that actually all the women are looking out for each other um, do you feel that now on the show? I don't just feel it on the show I mean I, I've done some podcasts and I, I feel generally any woman that's not insecure about herself can compliment and really has nice things to say about the work that you produce. I am one of those women. I haven't got an envious bone in my body. If somebody is successful, I applaud them. If somebody can get somewhere where people say they can never go and you do like I did, I applaud them. And and to never give up on one's dreams. I think women need to continue to support women. That's got nothing to do with the men, but I feel like we need to continue to support each other. The world is an ever-changing place. And for sure, strictly... Definitely, I am aware that we are, we've got some really strong, wonderful women on that show. So do you think men are more competitive in a destructive way? I can't talk about the TV industry, but in my own Latin American industry, my ballroom industry, I feel that the men at the very, very top, they're egotistical, they're narcissistic, they are... um, all those words that it's it's about them and not about other people. I mean, so much so now that we've split it, we've split two societies. We just used to be under one umbrella before, and the bullying has gotten so bad that we have now taken on another form um, in the WDO where we now have a different society and you have a choice. 
about which society that you would want to go into. And I just had this conversation with a good friend yesterday. And I, I said, I need to feel like I belong in a family. And in this new society, I believe I belong in a family because the old society didn't want me, took my work off me, bullied me, said horrible things about me, lied about me. Why would I want to stay there? It sounds absolutely extraordinary. It's sort of, you know, beyond difficult to work in. But some things are changing for the better, do you think? The dynamics have changed in the show. You're about to have the same-sex partnerships. Do you think that's a good thing, that it's now opening up and that it's broader and that it's not quite so dominated by sort of very, very testosterone-fueled men? <laughs> I think it's not only good. I think it's brilliant. I think to be diverse in today's society is the way to go. People need to be who they want to be. We shouldn't be saying you need to be this, you need to do that. Take care of yourself. Be who you want to be. And I, for one, am extremely excited. But don't forget, we've had same-sex couples dancing in our industry for a long time. And when I started out, I danced with a little girl for four years. You know, so for me, it's nothing new. I shall be going out there with a with a, a crunch in my step and I will be looking at the technique and the quality of movement. That's what I'll be looking at. And it doesn't make any difference to me whether it's two men, three men, five men, to man and woman, doesn't matter. Two women, doesn't matter for me. I will be looking at how they their beautiful frames move to music. That's how I'll be looking. And I wonder whether you think it's harder or easier for the next generation starting out now. You've got Instagram and airbrushing and TikTok. Do you think there's even more pressure, particularly on young girls who are starting out? Well, I've just done a TV show and we we covered this social media and airbrushing. And we actually went out several women to interview young girls. And one younger, beautiful girl, but if she doesn't get X amount of likes on Instagram, she then goes and has another treatment, or maybe she has a lips done, or she's thinking about her boobs, and maybe a facelift and Botox. And we're talking about 19 and 20. 20. We're not talking about 61. Mm. I'm like a little Botox, but you know, at the <laughs> you don't you don't need it. These were beautiful girls, totally controlled by social media. Mm. Do you think you'll carry on dancing forever or are you just too competitive to give up? Or do you think you'll be doing it for fun or do you think you'll be doing it with your grandchildren? How, how can you see yourself in the next 20 years? Well, first of all, I pinch myself every every year I get invited back to Strictly because that just is the icing on the cake for me. But in my own industry, I can go from teaching 10, 12 lessons, whatever, to four lessons a day if I want. We have a beautiful studio. We've got so many teachers in there. My best friend who lives over the road, Karen, we've been friends for 53 years. We work in the same studio. You know, we, we did all of lockdown together and I can never see myself retiring. And just sitting on a beach or whatever. I do need to take more holidays. I do need to take more self-care. I've had some lessons on self-care. I'm, I'm working on that and taking nice baths and candles, things I've never done. Right. <laughs> so I am working on those aspects and some holidays, you know. But I love my industry. But you delayed surgery, didn't you? So you had um, the right amount of time in the studio. And I think you haven't seen your son for two years. Do you feel at all that you've sacrificed aspects of your personal life to have this incredible professional life? Or are you happy about that balance? I don't think I got the balance. So here goes my emotions again. I don't think I got the balance right with my son. I don't. I wasn't there when he had chicken pox. Sometimes I was gone three months at a time when we were in Japan and 
uh, we'd have to travel because I just wanted to prove to myself that I could get back to the top after I've been told by so many people, you know, your career is over. I just wanted to prove to myself that I could. And, and I had to make sacrifices. And I look back and I think to myself, you know, the work will always be there, Shirley. There's always a new generation. There's always somebody who wants to learn information from you. I made sacrifices for sure, but I've had this conversation with my son and he's he went to private school and he became who he became and he's got no issues with it at all. So I do address, I have addressed that several times with him in the past. Mm. And he's become a dancer too, hasn't he? Well, he would never like me to refer to him as a dancer. <laughs> I made him dance. I pushed mm. him into dancing because I wanted him to be a good teenager, but his heart always lay in music. And of course, he went on Dancing with the Stars. He was highly successful on that. Two times winner, 11 times finalist, second place, something like that. And then he went to Broadway, played Frankie Valli on Broadway and Charlie Price in Kinky Boots and many other shows that he did. And now he's married to a great musician, B.C. Jean. She wrote the song If I Were a Boy for, for Beyonce and many other hits. You know, they're a great musical duo, Alexander Jean. And that's where his true passion lies. He'd rather live in a box doing his music than live in a palatial home dancing. Incredibly talented family. That's the best way I can put it because, (laughs) you know, for him, it's all about what he feels and it's about, you know, writing that song and it's about being just immersed inside the musical instruments. His whole body is a musical instrument. And and I'm happy that he's happy on his journey, wherever that might take him. Mm. And... I think your father died quite recently as well. Did you reconcile with him before he passed away? A lot of things went unsaid, but, you know, I would have loved to have sat down with my dad. I'm a person that if something's not right, and it can be with anybody, it could be with my best friend, it could be with management, it could be with my mom. I say how I feel and then let's move on. I don't carry grudges. I think that's unhealthy, but I need to get it off my chest. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm that character Mm -hmm. of person. So, but I did go to visit him. I did go to visit him. You know, if I was up north with my mom, I'd pop in for a cup of tea. And and I know that deep down in his heart, he was immensely proud. It's just, I missed out on so much having him. What what would it have been like to have a father? You know, what would it have been like to not have to struggle and worry how you were going to get home from Wales, you know, or have to beg a ride from somebody or coming home on trains and buses age 11 through Liverpool? You know, what would it have been like if I'd have had a bit, if he could have had the foresight my mother had and saw the talent and the dedication? Would have been nice if he would have helped. But you know what? He didn't. And, you know, he lost not only my brother, but he lost his other son as well. So, you know, it was a struggle. I'm sure things were a struggle for him. So I'm, I, I try to look at it in a positive light, but uh, I definitely missed having a father for sure. And what would you say now to your seven-year-old self to reassure yourself? I would say to my seven-year-old self, go on this journey, take every day as it comes, live every moment to the full. Don't listen to the people who tell you you're going to have pock skin because you've got spots, which is what I was told. You've got, you're so fat, you'll never make a dancer. You know, as a young person, you're influenced by every remark that comes out of somebody's mouth. So I say to the people out there, think before you speak. 
And I say to the young people, go out there and get those dreams and try to put some walls and barriers up so that those remarks bounce off them and you become more bulletproof. I was vulnerable. I was strong charactered because obviously I'd been raised on a housing estate where everybody mucked in. And, you know, I go back there now and I know the whole estate that is proud of me. Um, and it strengthened me. It gave me a backbone. But still, it was difficult when you're because my mother couldn't travel with me. So I traveled on my own. I was at the mercy of other children's parents that would say remarks or would say things or do things or whatever. And um I came through it. In the end, I came through it. And it's only now I'm starting to recognize those qualities. You've overcome a huge amount. I wonder to what extent you think that struggling does make you stronger and that in a way that resilience gives you the drive that you need to succeed and really get to the top in your career. Well, I would say in my instance, all of that, what you've just said, definitely resilience. Definitely when people push you down and tell you you'll be nothing but a wallflower, you're ugly, you're old, you're fat, you're this, you'll never make it. Why are you coming back to England? You left, nobody loves you here. You know, now you've got a baby, you've got no chance, you know. And then to prove to myself that I could win it in 1995 after winning it in 83 and again in 96, so won it twice with Corky. And then that was enough for me. I thought, you know what? That's it. Mark was already 10, turning 11. And I thought, that's good. That's good. You have you've you've made a landmark here and, and good for the other kids that come up, you know, that they can see that where there's a will, there's a way. Shirley Ballas, your life has really been extraordinary. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you both for having me today. It's been lovely to take that trip down memory lane for sure. been listening to past imperfect with alice thompson rachel sylvester and our guest this week strictly come dancing shirley ballas this has been a wireless studios production for times radio produced by ben mitchell to make sure you never miss an episode you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and listen back to our previous guests on the times radio app we'll be back with another past imperfect next week until next time thanks for listening If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help.